So this time I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews 6. This is one that I walk into with a, a bit of trepidation, thinking about the heaviness of what we're going to explore and uncover. It's a passage that has been debated and has been spoken of as the most controversial passage in the New Testament. It's a difficult passage to work through, but an important one, perhaps is one of the heaviest passages in the New Testament. Welcome. Here we go. But here's, here's a principle to think about as we go into a text like this one. Um, whether you're inside or outside of Christian thought, in terms of a debate, something that appears unresolvable or unsolvable, in most cases with some work, you can boil down what's there to real simplicity. Just take some work. Hard truths, in other words, are difficult to grasp and to accept, but often at the same time are easy to grasp once they are accepted. Once you embrace what's there by faith, often things become clearer. What you find is what's hard to accept is not the logic of what's there in terms of thinking, but the reality of what's there in terms of its implications. There's a lot of Bible battles or debates that are biblical debates that are perennial and people debate them over and over again. There's a few here, but let me just give you a couple of other ones that we're not going to cover this morning. If God is all powerful, then why did he allow evil into our world? How can a good and loving God send people to hell? Is it fair for hell to be forever? Since God is sovereign over who is saved, then how can he hold people accountable to believe? Have you ever heard of any of these debates? A few of them? Is it fair to require people to believe who grow up in an unreached people group area who will grow up and never hear the saving gospel? Is it fair for God to judge that person? Why is Christ the only way for someone to be saved? Why do the wicked prosper while godly Christians suffer? These are heavy questions. Hebrews 6 is going to open up some more of them. Here's two of them. Can a Christian fall away and lose his or her salvation? That's one of them. Here's the second one. Can someone in his or her lifetime come to the point of no return where he or she is beyond the reach of God's grace? Both of these are found in our study, verses 1 through 8 of Hebrews 6. But again, look at our text and remember the principle. What appears to be unresolvable with some work, along with some faith and acceptance, can become simple. For something to be made simple, though, doesn't mean that it is not still heavy and hard to swallow. We need to believe what's there. All scripture is profitable, right? For teaching, for equipping, for training, to make you righteous, to make you more like Christ. And so we're going to dig in 
with that motivation. We're digging in not just to understand something on an intellectual level, but to be transformed by Christ as we understand what he has for us here. This text is going to be an expository sermon as I always do or try to always do unless we do something topical here and there. But my main points come under these two questions that I raised at the beginning here. The first question is, can someone who is truly a Christian fall away and lose his or her salvation? Verses 1 to 5. Let me just begin by reading there. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then the beginning of verse six, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance Well, how do we answer this question? Can people who are Christians come to a place where they fall away and find themselves in in an impossible situation to ever be restored to Christ again? First of all, can a Christian fall away? And secondly, can they come to the point of no return? That's what this text is begging us to ask and answer and to be warned by this text as we answer these questions. The first three verses uh, describe an audience. This is the audience that we are to consider that's being addressed by this author. And verse one is one where the apostle or the author is including himself. He says, let us, therefore let us do something. He's including himself. Verse 3 says, and this we will do. He's speaking to a Christian audience. He's speaking to believers, as we learned last week, who were in a state of possible stagnation, drinking milk when they need to be moving on to the meat of the word of God. They need to transition from milk drinking to meat eating. They were stuck in the elementary doctrine of Christ, as verse 1 puts it. And they literally, as verse 1 says, they need to go on to maturity. The idea is they need to be carried on to maturity. They're in the milk, but the Spirit of God, by God's grace, needs to carry them forward into maturity, into a state of what has been the Greek word telos, it, we've, we've kind of opened up. It's verse 9 where Christ was being made perfect as he grew as a human, as a fully God, fully man, perfect second person of the Trinity who under the Father's plan was literally maturing in life, never having sinned, never sinning, but nevertheless Maturing, And he trailblazed what it looked like to face trials and to pass them at every turn, to never equivocate. And he trailblazes for us what it looks like to press on to maturity. Verse 14 of chapter 5, solid foods for the mature, 
For those who have their powers of discernment, they have their full spiritual faculties able to discern between good and evil. That's maturity. It's applying scripture in life. So back to verse one, what does it mean to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ? Certainly this does not mean to leave the foundations of the faith. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean to abandon what you know to be true. It's the idea instead of staying on your foundation, but then moving forward and growing and building upon it. It's not okay just to be a stagnant milk drinker because that will leave you in a state of digression. If you stay a milk drinker, if you stay with just fundamental understandings of the faith, that will put you in a vulnerable spot where you'll eat anything. Just like I mentioned last week, a baby on the ground putting anything in its mouth. You don't want to stay there. You want to move on from that stage. What are the elementary doctrines? And that, well, that was what was mentioned before in verse 12 of chapter 5. The oracles of God, the basic principles of the oracles of God, the basic things that had been spoken of through the Old Testament. And you tie this to Christ because all of the Old Testament was meant to point to Christ. What does that mean? Every story, every prophecy, ceremony, law, And poetry, either directly or indirectly, was pointing to the Messiah. What does that look like? Every Christophany was a picture of Christ. Christ spoke out of the burning bush. Christ is the one who met um, Joshua in Joshua 5 as the commander, the captain with the sword. He was... The picture, of, the picture of salvation in the ark where Noah and his family were saved and the door closed. David is a picture of Christ, a king that was a forerunner of Christ. The bronze serpent that was raised in the wilderness to save those who were being killed by the fiery serpents. That's a picture of Christ being raised. The scarlet cord that was dropped out of Rahab's window is a red scarlet picture of salvation. Abraham's son, who was almost sacrificed, and then there was a substitute, a ram in the thicket, is a picture of Christ. Moses pictured Christ as a leader. Every lamb that was splattered and killed And put on the doorpost is a picture of the salvation of Christ. Every paschal lamb that was offered on the day of atonement, every scapegoat that was freed is a picture of the gospel of Christ. The vision of Christ in Isaiah 6 is Christ exalted. The prediction of the humiliation of Christ in Isaiah 53 is Christ. Genesis 3.15 The head that was crushed, that's Christ crushing Satan on the cross. That was the proto-euangelion, the prediction of the cross of Christ. The fourth man who's in the fiery furnace with the three Hebrew boys was Christ. One as the son of the gods, that was Christ. Daniel 3.25, the son of man that will return in the clouds. The ancient of days, Daniel 7, is Christ. The rock who was in the wilderness that Moses struck was Christ. The cloud by day, the pillar by night, Christ. Are these stories to be left behind? Are we supposed to move on from that foundation? No. 
We're not supposed to jettison it. We're supposed to build upon it. And that's what the language of verse one is saying. Don't stay there. Zechariah three is a vision of heaven where Christ is standing as our advocate, clothing Joshua there in the robes of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 53, he's pierced for our transgressions. Zechariah 12.10, they look on the one whom they have pierced. And then the new covenant is even foreshadowed in the Old Testament. I'm just trying to tell you, this is what this church that's being addressed, this is what they understood. This is the foundation we're talking about. These are the ABCs, storybook level understanding that this church had. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, I will make with those of the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36. This church knew these things. Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The worldwide mission where God would redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. All of this foundation had been laid in their lives and in their hearts. Just like being raised in Sunday school where you see the flannel graph and now you see the computer screen and you see the Old Testament tying the truths of Jesus together, right? And boys and girls learn about God in this way and they understand the elementary doctrine of Christ. That's what this author is talking about. It's why Jesus told the two on the road to Emmaus, In Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the believers were at least this far along in their faith. But they were now to be understanding things even in a greater way because revelation had progressed from Malachi. Genesis to Malachi introduces the coming Messiah, but Jesus came. Gospels were written or being written. Epistles were being spoken and written down for us. These Christians were exposed to and accountable to the ministry of Christ. They had been taught as we've learned. They were third generation Christians. There were those who were with Christ and those who taught others about the experiences they had with Christ. And then these now were having the baton passed on to them and they were accountable to this greater message of who Jesus is and what he means for them. Remember Peter, when he was preaching at Pentecost, we see that he was connecting the prophecy of Joel to the new level presence of the Holy Spirit creating the church. And Peter ties a a portion of David's experience, quoting a psalm to Christ's death and his burial in specific and how his body would not decay. And then Peter brings it right to the crux of things, a crossroads where he says, repent every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't enough for Peter to just keep things with Joel and with David. He drew the connection to Christ and they needed to be baptized in the name of Christ, meaning you're believing all of this. And you have the disciples of John in Acts 19. It says that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Did these disciples believe in Jesus? Well, yes, they believed in Jesus who was to come. Did they have any understanding of the Holy Spirit? Well, perhaps an Old Testament version. But there was more revelation. The Holy Spirit had come. Jesus had come, had died, had been buried and risen from death. And they needed to believe in all of this. This is where the disciples in Hebrews were teetering. They were, they, were, they were potentially going back or digressing because they weren't moving ahead in their understanding. They needed to move from the word pictures to a deeper understanding of the gospel and truth. Verse 1 says that they were to not lay again a foundation of repentance. Don't recycle what you believe. Don't recycle what you understand. This is the temptation within the church. You say, I'm good. I've got a basic understanding. Now I can just show up. I don't need to go deeper. I don't need to be changed or transformed anymore. It's a very dangerous place to be. What what had these disciples already understood? Well, they understood a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. They had a foundation of understanding that if you try to get to heaven by works, that will equal death in your life. If you go a Pharisee's route, you will die. If you try to earn your way to heaven like Paul did, where he said, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, Paul had the elementary truths of the Old Testament down in a superficial sense, but had not connected things by faith to Christ. That's why he was killing Christians. He thought that Christianity was against all that he understood. And the Pharisee, according to Jesus, is a whitewashed tomb, outwardly appearing beautiful, but within full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is what it likes. This is what it's like to be a shell in church, sitting there like a shell, lifeless. I've got some understanding of things. I was raised in it. I understand it. But it's just going to lie there dormant in me. That's very dangerous. Doesn't mean that you are not a Christian, but it might mean that according to where we're going in Hebrews 6. What else did they know? Well, they understood washings. They understood all of the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. I Google searched and 39 washings immediately came up through the Old Testament. And I scanned through them. 
This is not baptisms. That would be the word baptizo, but this is baptismos. This is talking about ceremonial washings. And the washings were not just for the priesthood. The washings were for everyone. Everyone was being ceremonially washed all of the time. Because though Levites had to be washed, and Moses washed people when he gave the law ceremonially, anyone who ever ate a wrong animal, touched anything that was infected or considered unclean, anything dead at all, had to be washed. And so there were basins at the front entrance of people's homes, and they were always ceremonially washing themselves to make sure that they were clean, and they were in bounds with God's law. A leprous person, for instance, in Leviticus 14.8, had to be cleansed, shall wash his clothes, shall shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day, he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and shall be, he shall be clean. What was the significance of all this? Was this just for physical cleanliness and safety from leprosy? No, this was all to point to a inner need that everyone has to be cleansed. So the author is saying, if you're just laying again this foundation and you're thinking about ceremonially washing in terms of Old Testament ceremonialism, even if you've come to Christ, if that's where your mind is in terms of what all that means, you're in a state of stagnation. That's what he's talking about. Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. The point of the external cleansing was always, even in the Old Testament, to point to an inner cleansing. Jesus said to Nicodemus, truly, I say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, unless one is cleansed in their heart and born again by the spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of God, Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this question again. I don't want you to miss the point. Do you believe that these readers, these hearers understood all these things that I've been talking about? All of the elementary things of Christ, all of the Old Testament doctrine that pointed to Christ, like the two on the road to Emmaus. And then these foundational truths about dead works religion that they needed to lay aside and not believe in. Coming to faith, coming to God through faith and not laying this foundation again. Instructions of washing, laying on of hands. Well, that was done to ceremonially set apart priests for the priesthood. In the New Testament, it was to set apart people for mission trips. It was also the laying on of hands in the New Testament for elders to be set apart in the office of elder. Here it's a reference to the Old Testament laying on of hands called expiation where a priest would lay hands on a sacrifice and would ceremonially say, I am transferring the sin guilt of you as a sinner and I'm taking it and I'm placing it on the hands of this sacrifice so that it can be killed for the forgiveness of your sins. 
not the actual forgiveness, but the symbol of the forgiveness. It's all a symbol of Christ. And these people understood that. They did. They understood this foundation. Leviticus 1.4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement or covering for him. They also understood something of the resurrection of the dead. In the Old Testament, it was very vague. Job spoke of this resurrection, seeing life after death. My skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, Job 19.26. The nether world was something that even King David spoke of when he lost his child in infancy. He said, I can't bring him back, but I shall go to him, 2 Samuel 12.23, Psalm 23. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This, these vagaries went away when Christ came. He said, I'm the resurrection of the life. He rose Lazarus from, from death. The people, the church knew that Christ had been raised and they knew that they too would be raised like Christ was. First John 3, 2. We do not know when he appears what, it, what, what we shall look like. We're children of God now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And 1 Corinthians 15 talks all about that. Look at verse three. This is all a sort of a capstone of this first section. This we will do if God permits. What will we do? We, the writer included, will proceed from this foundation on into maturity. How? By willpower? No, by God's grace. Who changes you, you or God? Well, we progress in our sanctification. We want to grow. We make up our mind to grow, but God gives us the power to do it. And if you are in stagnation today, if you're feeling stagnant, if you feel like a Pharisee's shell, then you know you need God to move you from one stage to another stage, don't you? God has to do it. He says this we, we will do if God permits. The problem with these hearers was not what they understood. They understood truth. They knew God's word. They had God's word. They had a handle on the scripture. But they were still in danger. The point here is not to show what they didn't know, but how dangerous it can be to know a whole lot and do nothing with it. Do you see that? It's dangerous to let the scripture lie dormant in your life. That's where he's headed. If you want to understand some of the most difficult verses to interpret, you have to understand that foundation. It's dangerous to understand a whole lot of truth and just let it lay there in stagnation. So you consider who the audience is, now consider their experiences. What were they experiencing with their heads full of truth? Well, this is a hypothetical situation. 
Not everybody was stagnant, but some in the church no doubt were. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those. Stop there. In the case of those. The apostle here so far has been including himself in the first three verses, the first scenario. The writer is saying, look, I have this same foundation. I understand the elementary truths of Christ, this doctrine of Christ. I've got it. I understand about washings. I understand about faith. I understand the truth about the resurrection. I understand the truth about eternal judgment. I understand these things. And I, like you, need to continue to move on and progress in my faith. But there are some of you, perhaps, and this is maybe even a hypothetical here, something that could happen to you, that's not going to happen to the writer. It says in the case of those, he's building some distance between what could happen to some people and what is not going to happen to him. He says, for it is impossible in the case of those. Something can become impossible for you to recover from, is what he's saying. There is some situation where you could be in a state of impossibility, even in this life. A point of no return in this life. It's impossible for those certain people who actually have these experiences to ever be restored again. It's a warning to this audience. He's not wishing this outcome on this audience. And verse 9 actually gives a very strong point of hope that he doesn't think this is going to happen to this audience, but he's giving the warning nevertheless. He does assume a different case, but this warning is not excluding believers. Believers need to hear this warning and understand it. Because they could fall prey to an impossible situation. Well, first of all, we have to understand these experiences. What are they? Look at verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So you could be enlightened and move on. You could taste who have tasted the heavenly gift. You go to the next one and have shared in the Holy Spirit. You go to the next one, verse five, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Those are five different experiences that people in the church regularly have in one form or another. These are experiences that believers have within the church. And rightfully so. These are also experiences that professing believers have within the church. And you don't want to miss that point. People who believe that they are saved because of these experiences who are not really saved yet at all. Like Judas Iscariot being around all the miracles of Christ. Being one of the disciples actually performing miracles teaching in the name of Christ, and yet it would have been better had he not been born. It's a son of perdition. 
enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who are these people who are experiencing these things? Well, you have the wheat and you have the tares in the church. You have the soils, you have three different soils in Christ's parable that are unbelievers. Two of the three look like believers for a little while where life sprouts up and then they're choked out by the trials of the world or the worries and concerns of the world and they don't have a root. And then the fourth soil is the one soil that is genuine and remains These experiences are important to understand. They all string together. The assumption in the grammar and language here is that if you've experienced one of these things, you're experiencing all of these things within the church. These are the common experiences that if you grew up in church, you are familiarized with. You understand. But you need to understand that these experiences are not the same terminology that the New Testament uses for final salvation. This isn't talking about being born again or justified or sanctified or regenerated or glorified. Begins with the term enlightened. Look at this. Someone has once been enlightened. What does that mean? It's photizo. It's used in scripture for light or lighting lamps. It's used in a general way. It could be a throwback reference to the wilderness generation that was in the wilderness following the pillar of fire, Exodus 13, 21 and other references. But it's specific really to someone who comes clear on the truth. It's a seedling that sprouts up with joy for a moment and says, I've seen Jesus and I see truth and I understand something. There's life here. This is a poor person who has a decisive event in their life. Hebrews 10 32 says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Well, someone would say, well, that means enlightened means that you're saved. Well, it's true that This reference in Hebrews 10.32 is talking about someone who is saved or people who are saved. They, They had a decisive point where the lights came on, but they did something when the lights came on. They endured, you see this? You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. What's the proof of salvation? That the lights come on? Well, that's the starting point. The proof is that you endure hardship. The lights come on and you're producing fruit or fruit is being produced in your life. You're running the race with endurance, which is the point of Hebrews. You run and then you keep running. John 1 says the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Did everyone that Jesus met, did they all believe? No, not at all. Many did not believe. The crowds would disperse in view of Jesus' miracle ministry. They would, in the worst case scenario, the Pharisees would attribute Jesus' miracle work to Satan, Satan's power. So a lot of people were hardened to Christ, even though they were initially inspired by him. They saw Jesus as light. They were impressed, but then they hardened up. Well, there are some who are enlightened, who also 
tasted the heavenly gift, verse 4, tasting the heavenly gift. The gift here, I don't believe, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some will argue for that. But the next reference is to the Holy Spirit. I think the gift here is Christ himself. Now, some people also who will argue that these are descriptors of people who are saved will say taste means that you're actually tasting Christ to consumption. You're really fully believing because Jesus, or it's used in Hebrews 2, 9, that Jesus tasted death for everyone. It means he fully died. So this is talking about full salvation, but I don't think so. I think tasting is speaking more to a starting point. Even in Hebrews 2, 9, the point of Hebrews 2, 9 is uh, that Jesus did fully die, but he died for everyone so that everyone could believe. His death is the beginning, the starting point that people need to believe in. And in the same way, tasting the heavenly gift here is talking about sampling Jesus. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. All true believers do taste and see that the Lord is good. But everyone who tastes God or taste of Christ is not truly converted. It's a starting point. The one who tastes and sees that the Lord is good has a salvation that sticks, a salvation that keeps going. Do you remember when Jesus was confronting the crowds who were around him? They were around the light of Christ. They were intrigued by Christ. He called them to full consumption with a very, very graphic image. John six fifty three. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So if you merely stop with tasting Christ, but don't fully consume Christ, then you really have none of Christ. Jesus demands a full commitment. I remember reading a pastor writing on this, the hard sayings of Christ. I remember reading this book when I was in college about what does it mean to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood that sounds so bizarre. And he made some reference to the phrase blood, sweat, and gears. The idea of BMX biking or or motocross that you are fully all in. And I think that's true. It's like, man, I am going after Christ with a full commitment, full consumption. Many of you who are sitting here are going, you know what? Maybe I am a shell. Maybe I'm someone who does not yet possess the life of Christ within me. Perhaps you haven't made a full commitment to Christ yet. A lot of people will bank on these experiences. They'll remember historical moments in their life where the lights came on or they, they got excited about Christ for a little while. They tasted him. They remember all that they learned in Sunday school and they say, I'm just fine, right? Well, this is saying wrong. It's not enough. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? And have shared in the Holy Spirit. The idea of the word shared here or being a partaker of the Holy Spirit, it's not talking about 
possession of the Holy Spirit, it's talking in terms of association with the Holy Spirit. It means that you're around the Holy Spirit. Have you ever sensed that the Holy Spirit is moving in someone's life who is around you? It's a very powerful thing to observe. You ever seen somebody who was completely dead come to life spiritually and get excited about the things of God where their attitudes and actions change? That's very powerful. That's as powerful as any miracle recorded in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. The powers of God on display around us are powerful to observe, but by just observing the power of God and even acknowledging the power of God, that does not save you in and of itself. It says of Jesus, he was around fishermen. That's the same word use here, being around the Holy Spirit, Luke 5, 7. And then moving on, tasted, you've tasted the heavenly gift and also the goodness of, of the word of God. So you've tasted Christ, verse four, and then verse five, tasted the goodness of the word of God. You've even tasted the the word of God as a good thing in your life. You say the word of God is good. But the word used for the word of God here is interesting. It's not the word logos, which speaks of the written, inscripturated, inspired word of God. This is the word rhema. This is the word that would be used of Christ when he spoke a word and someone would be healed. It's a rhema word. It's talking in terms of the parts, not the whole. Logos would be the whole word, the whole counsel of God, the scripture. Rhema is a spoken word into a moment. It would be like a scripture being referenced. It's not comprehensive it's it's someone who is cherry picking in terms of the word of god and its applications for your life a lot of people say i really like that about the word of god a lot of the american founding fathers some of whom were deists they liked a lot about jesus they liked a lot about his example and his model and who he was and they also liked other moral men It's not okay just to like things about the Bible and believe it's a moral book. It's not okay just to raise your kids in morality, the morality of Scripture. The the Scripture has to come to full light and life in your heart. Jeremiah had this testimony. He says, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and delight of my heart. For I am called by your name. It's not okay just to have disciplines around you that get you into the Bible. It's not a bad thing to have that. I appreciate this accountability every week of my life to have to be ready to know something about the Bible in front of you every week. It helps me get into the Bible. But that's not enough, right? You have to want the Bible. Because God has created this desire within you, wanting the truth. You remember Herod who loved to hear John the Baptist, even the hard message that included accusations against him because he was living immorally. He enjoyed listening to John the Baptist preach, but then ultimately... When confronted and pressed to decide, he lopped off John the Baptist's head. 
Before that, it said Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It's a person who really enjoyed preaching and yet was fully dead inside, anti-Christ. That's Herod. Think of uh, Benjamin Franklin. He's a founding father who's a known deist. He believed in God generally, but he kept God at a distance. But he loved to hear George Whitfield when he would preach. Verse 5. You also, not only do you taste the goodness of the word of God, you taste the powers of the age to come. These are the dynamic power miracles. Hebrews 2.4 speaks of how they were exposed to the signs and wonders of the early church, the various miracles that bore witness of Christ, the signs and wonders and miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. They were seeing God moving in the early church in great expansion, probably all the way to Italy where I think that they were. They saw the miracle work of God They knew of Lazarus who had been dead and been raised. They understood the testimony of people coming to Christ. These are the powers of God that they were tempted to just see superficially. So why are these five descriptions here not saving descriptions? I mean, some people believe they are. Well, but look at verse six. Here's the the capstone description of all five. You have to look at number six in verse six. So you have all of these descriptions, enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift, sharing in the Holy Spirit, tasting the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's the sixth description. Again, it's a hypothetical. Verse four is saying, in the case of those who experience all these things, all of these things that are strung together, that that are being made a case for a person's salvation. I know I'm saved because I've been around all these great things and these things have affected me all of my life. And yet verse six, then have fallen away. Then just walk, they just walk away from it. In the case of those, verse 4, the sentence finishes to restore them, verse 6, again to repentance. It's impossible. For it is impossible, verse 4, in the case of those, and then verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Where's the hope in this? Well, again, the hope in this comes up in verse 9. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, same word. There's the hypothetical case where this can happen to you within the church. But he's saying, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. That's saying two things. First of all, those experiences are not necessarily the things of salvation. They are things that we experience as saved people being in the church. But those things are not things that we can bank on to save us. Do you see that? You can't bank on those experiences to save you. You can't. 
But the author is saying, I'm assuming you're going to move on from this elementary foundation of milk drinking to maturity, and you're not going to stay in a state of stagnation and that you're going to grow. I'm sure of that. But there's still the warning, nevertheless, when someone's exposure to Christ and all of the ABCs of the Old Testament and all of this straight up light is on them, if they reject it, it will jeopardize everything. It's the sunshine that warms, that tans, that fills your body with vitamin D. Can I get a witness? But it also destroys cells, dehydrates, and causes skin cancer when left unprotected. The Bible is a power tool. We have to wield it carefully. It can do wonderful things. It can also cut your hand off. You don't want something to become impossible for you or anyone else. So what does this mean? How do we put all this together? Well, we're going to have to do it next time. My brain couldn't open it all up for this time. But I do want to mention one thing. Just as a way of an illustration and an analogy as we close. Um, There's a trend out there where people in our culture are against vaccinating children, and I'm not trying to stir the pot and bring that up, but it does get your attention to bring up trendy things sometimes. It's called the anti-vax. I don't agree with this trend, but I do see where the fear of vaccination comes from because to immunize someone is to inject just a little bit of the disease into your child or your little baby and then do nothing about it, right? That's immunizing. Doing so allows the body to build a natural deterrent or antibody to the disease so that it will not take over your entire body and kill you or harm other people and consume you. By analogy, people within the church regularly inject just a little bit of the gospel in their hearts, just a little bit of Jesus in their hearts, and then do nothing about it. They just leave it there. And by doing so, they are immunizing themselves with Jesus and his power, allowing truth to lie dormant within them, and in doing so, building a Jesus antibody an internal deterrent to Jesus and the truth where Jesus, though he's present and all around you is a wall walling off Jesus to your heart, rendering the power of Jesus ineffective in your life, rendering you to a situation where he can't take over your entire life and consume you. It's what you want. Sort of a reverse analogy here. We need to embrace all of Christ. So this condition that we're talking about, it begs another question. What does it mean? What does this mean about God's grace and compassion? Is God's grace still sufficient enough to save everyone in this life? And we're going to answer that question next time.